Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Easy Conversations podcast, a podcast about having easy conversations. I'm your host, Burkan Dandia. In this week's episode, I'm honored to welcome Dale Boardwell. Dale is the founder and executive director of A Living Dying Project. He is a pioneer in the conscious dying movement and has worked directly with thousands of people with life-threatening illnesses and their families for over 30 years. In 1981, Dale founded the first residential facility for people who wish to die consciously in the United States, called the Dying Center. He has taught and lectured extensively on spiritual support for those with life-threatening illnesses, caregiving as a spiritual practice, and healing at the edge of illness, death, loss, or crisis. Dale has a BS from UC Berkeley and a PhD from Stanford University. He is the co-author of Journey of Awakening, a Meditator's Guidebook, and has taught meditation for the past 35 years. He has intensively immersed himself in the practices of devotion, meditation, and contemplative prayer for over 40 years, studying with many of the greatest masters of the last century, including Suzuki Roshi, Kalu Rinpoche, and the Dalai Lama, just to name a few. Dale has taught with Ram Dass, Stephen Levine, Joan Halifax, Jack Cornfield, Joseph Goldstein, Reverend Wayne Muller, and many others. His life's work and passion have been and continue to be the healing of our individual and collective relationship with death and using our mortality to inspire spiritual awakening. In this episode, Dale shares his journey of finding meditation on how he has he was able to calm his mind and get his ego to be less intrusive. Dale and I also discuss what conscious dying looks like and how people can come to terms with death and why there is fear when one contemplates death. Dale also explains what the Living Dying Project is based upon. Please check out more of Dale's work on www.livingdying.org. I really hope you get a lot out of this episode. And if at the end you could leave a five-star review, I would truly appreciate it. All right, Dale, welcome to the Easy Conversations podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I'm really honored to have you on and looking forward to the conversation we're going to have today. But before we get started, I wanted to give you an opportunity to introduce yourself to the listeners and share a little bit about what is the work you do. And then we'll, we'll go from there into our conversation. Okay. Well, my name is Ram Dave Dale Borglum. I have a spiritual name and a regular name. I mushed them together. I'm the executive director of the Living Dying Project, and we're an organization based in Northern California that offers uh, conscious support, conscious spiritual support to people who are dying. Mm. I, along with uh, Ram Dass and Stephen Levine back in the late 1970s, started the conscious dying movement here in the West. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had a place in Santa Fe called the Dying Center that I was director of. It was the first place where people uh, could come and live who wanted to die consciously. Mm-hmm. If you want, at some point, we can talk about what dying consciously really yeah. means. Uh, I am also a meditation teacher. Uh, in fact, uh, I'm teaching a bunch of workshops coming up uh, pretty soon. So if anybody's interested in all this stuff, the website is livingdying.org, L-I-V-I-N-G, 
D-Y-I-N-G.org. Uh, we have speaker series. I have a free group every other Saturday that has 400 people in it, a Zoom spiritual support mm-hmm. group. Uh, and there are these both uh, live and online workshops that are available. So there's all this material about how can we bring the traditional wisdom of the contemplative traditions, Hinduism, Buddhism, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, to the encounter with a life-threatening illness and to grieving and to caregiving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. And uh, I'll put a lot of those resources in the show notes um, and we'll talk about it again at the end of the episode. But what uh, I, I'm just curious, and I'm sure the listeners are too, but what got you into this field of work? If you don't mind sharing a little bit about your journey from from the beginning. Well, it was kind of a roundabout thing. I actually got a PhD in math at Stanford back in the late 1960s when the consciousness explosion was exploding. And I was lucky enough or had good karma, whatever the heck it was, to end up being drinking buddies with Ramdas when I was a graduate student at Stanford. Whenever he'd come to Northern California, he'd stay right across the street from where I was living with a mutual friend. So I got to know him. Uh, before I met him, I was I had been involved in psychedelics and yoga and meditation and things. But he was, as I'm sure most of the listeners know, somebody who really was able to explain in a very heartfelt and uh, understandable way some of the deeper mysteries of spiritual exploration. Mm-hmm. Uh, back in those days, there weren't a lot of good books and. Ramdas had been to India already. He was able to talk about these things. So anyway, I was really getting tired of being a mathematician at that point. I was almost done, so I got my PhD. I went off to India and ended up with Ramdas's guru, my guru, this guy named Karoli Baba Maharaji. Uh, He's talked about in Ramdas's book, Be Here Now. I came back to America, and I didn't want to be a scientist anymore. So I did various things. I was a... uh, a chef in a vegetarian restaurant. I managed a musical group. And eventually I became the executive director of Ramdas's Hanuman Foundation, which was an umbrella foundation under which there were uh, service organizations doing good work. One of them, for instance, was the Prison Ashram Project, where our friend Bolozov was saying, being in a prison is a lot like being in an ashram, except you don't want to be there. They, they feed you, you've got your cell to meditate, you've got a set schedule. It's just like being at an ashram, except you're there involuntarily. So if, if you can change your attitude and use this as a time of diving inside and, and really exploring who you are, then the only people inside the prison are going to be the guards mm-hmm. and they'll be free. So we were essentially saying the same thing to people who were dying. You haven't chosen to be in this dying body but there you are, right? Then right? can you use this time as a time of awakening? Can you, can you become conscious as you're dying? And in fact, all these contemplative traditions say that the time right after physical death is the best opportunity for spiritual awakening. Mm-hmm. Because right now, it seems like you are somewhere far away and I'm here. Right. 
that you've got more hair and I've got less hair and you're younger and I'm older and all those things, that there's all this separate existence, mm -hmm. which is true. I'm not saying you don't have your characteristics, but in the West, we get lost in what's separate mm -hmm. and we forget the context of wholeness, of oneness, right. of pure consciousness, Christ consciousness, Buddha nature, higher power of the 12 steps, whatever you want yeah. to call that. Right. So when you're working with somebody who's dying, it's re really of crucial importance to be able to keep both of these dimensions of reality awake at the same time. I mean, it's possible to just deal with the human situation. This is a very sad thing. Somebody's dying. They're losing their body. They're losing their mind. They're losing all their stuff. They're losing all their friends. They're losing everything. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, or you can just be over on the spiritual side and say, it's all pure consciousness. It's karma unfolding. It's all perfect. Right. Nothing to get upset about. But can we do both of these things at the same time? Can we, can we be with, with the dying humanity? Can we be with the person who might be suffering mm -hmm. or the person who's making this transition? And at the same time, realizing it's ha happening in the context of pure consciousness right. and in fact can we realize right now as we're doing this podcast that at one level i'm in california you're in i guess you're in canada yeah. right by the funny way you talk you're in canada <laughs> yes okay anyway sorry all the canadians just got mad at me that's the end of this <laughs> podcast yeah anyway uh you're over there i'm over here as we're doing this podcast is it possible to surrender into that place where speaking and hearing and feeling your body and all this stuff is going on without tightly holding on to I'm doing it. Mm -hmm. I need to do better. I'm inadequate and I need to get this information. This guy sounds like he knows something or this guy sounds like he doesn't know a damn thing, whatever you're thinking, yeah. but that, that, uh, there's some sense of there's this me, I, I need some spiritual information so I can be a better human mm -hmm. being. And no, I'm sorry, you can't become a better human being. You're perfect just exactly the way right. you are, right? Uh, my first meditation teacher, Suzuki Roshi, had this great line. He said to his students, he said, you're all perfect, but there's still some room for improvement. Yeah. <laughs> right? So it, it's, that, it's that balance of the perfection and the human story that needs uh improvement mm. and work and things like that so that so that basically when we have an emotion just as an example suppose your friend is dying or you're caring for your yeah. friend and suppose the person is afraid right in in english we say i am afraid in spanish yo tengo miedo i have mm -hmm. fear in tibetan fear is here so just in the way we language things in English, it's so much harder not to become identified with the passing mind-body state, with the emotion, emotion, moving, moving energy, emotion. Yeah. So that very often when we're afraid, in fact, almost always when we're afraid, we get fixated on the triggers. Mm -hmm. I'm afraid because he's doing that or the government's doing this or the weather's doing that or my bank account's doing this, right? 
rather than what does it actually feel like to be afraid? What is the what is the bodily experience? Can I be with it with this embodied awareness, this embodied mindfulness? And then beyond that, can I have compassion for the part of me that has been suffering whenever I've gotten afraid for so many times in my life up until now? Can I begin to have some compassion for that guy or that woman, whoever it might right. be? Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things I do want to understand based on what you said, so in terms of we are perfect as we are, as you mentioned, but there's improvement needed. And is that more of in a, on a spiritual sense that we need that improvement to, to kind of become more spiritual? Is that what the teaching is? Well, uh, when we say in a spiritual sense, that's kind of tricky. Mm -hmm. Because uh, you really can't separate the spiritual from the psychological or from the physical. I mean, as I was saying before, emotions, moving energy. Emotions are experienced in the body. And I really, as a meditation teacher and as a guide to the dying, I really focus a lot on embodiment and physical experience. So many people get involved in meditation as a way of trying to get beyond their problems, to try to do an end run around what's bothering them. If I meditate high enough or, yeah. or wide enough or something, then I'm not going to feel the, the crappy stuff that's arising in my life. Right. right. Whereas it, uh, fundamentally, meditation is about becoming familiar with, making friends with, with a sense of kindness and mercy who you are and everything is arising moment to moment, beginning to have this loving relationship with yourself and all of your experience, mm -hmm. which uh, at first seems like, okay, I've got to really do something here. But the more you go into practice, at least in my experience, the more it is about surrendering and receiving right. and opening that, that blessing is always there. I mean, even when we're, Right now, I'm living in Northern California. There's just been all these storms, like there's floods and water all over the place, and people are dying because trees are falling on their cars or on their houses, or the one kid got ripped out of his mother's arms in the water. They never found him again. So these storms are going on. Is it possible then uh, to keep my heart open for that? Mm -hmm. It, it's pretty easy to keep your heart open if you're with somebody you love and you've just had a great meal and some wonderful music is playing and you've got some money in the bank and the doctor says you're pretty healthy right now. But when something goes wrong, right, is it possible to keep your heart open? If, if we haven't done some of, this, some of this beginning work of getting grounded, getting centered, inhabiting the lower chakras, being, being able to be present for fear, for shame, for guilt, for anxiety, for grandiosity, for all these emotions that people get so caught in, then you can open your heart, but it's only going to be a very temporary experience mm -hmm. because it's, it's depending on the environment being supportive. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you for explaining that. And one of the things I think that keeps coming up, at least from over the last few months, based on the work I've been doing is there's this fear of death for a lot of people. And I know you touched on that briefly, uh, that people get afraid. Why do you think there's that 
fear and anxiety around even getting old and facing that next chapter of our life uh, based on the work you've done? Well, as a recovering mathematician, I have a formula. I know everybody loves math, yeah. right? Okay. <laughs> All fear is basically fear of death. Mm -hmm. And fear of death equals lack of enlightenment. Mm -hmm. So enlightenment, to be overly simplistic here, which I love to do, is going beyond being identified with what's separate and surrendering into wholeness, into oneness. Yeah. And fear of death is, is, is the deepest fear. It's like fear. The New York Times did a survey a number of years ago. What are you most afraid of? Number one was speaking in public. Number three was dying. Okay, so that's kind of humorous in some way. But the part of you or me that would be afraid of speaking in public is the part of you or me that's afraid we're going to be embarrassed by somebody else. There's a me, there's those people out there that might judge me if I'm not clever enough or kind enough, whatever. And enlightenment is about surrendering that holding on to the eye sense of letting that dissolve by going through the heart. Now, uh, what, we're, what we're talking about here is ego mm -hmm. death. The, e e the ego doesn't want to die. The ego, the ego believes Descartes. I think, therefore, I am. So if you sit down to meditate, I don't know. Do you meditate Yeah, at I all? do. Okay, so you sit down to meditate, and you notice that you've got good intentions, but the mind is often agitated. Yeah. Thoughts keep coming, thoughts that aren't very important, that's just like filling up space, right? And why is that going on? Why can't you just relax and just be in your heart or or be spacious, or all those great things that the books talk about. Because in letting go and having an open, empty mind, it's ego right. death. There's no I then who's having the experience. And the I starts freaking out and says, well, wait a minute. Let's start thinking about what's for lunch, yeah. right? So, or something. So like one time I was at this longer meditation retreat. My mind was really, really clear, but still thoughts were coming sometimes. So I was really looking at what was, was happening. I began to notice the sequence, that there was this spacious mind. It's kind of semi-blissful, felt great. That went on for a while. And then some thoughts started coming. And after a short and not so short period of time, I became aware of the thoughts. And they dissolved back into that spaciousness for a while. And then there was thoughts. And then there was awareness of thoughts. And then spaciousness. There's this cycle mm -hmm. going on. And I thought, well, why don't I, why do those thoughts keep coming? It's so, it's so much more pleasant when I'm just resting in openness. And when I really paid attention, right before the thought was this very subtle fear of death, that fear of spaciousness, that I wanted to know that there was an I who could do something, even if it was having stupid thoughts. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I'm not saying the mind is an enemy, right. but we identify with all those thoughts. The mind is a wonderful tool. I mean, if you've got to do your income taxes or uh, make up the grocery list or figure something out, fine. But a lot of thoughts is this automatic thinking that is driven by fear of death as a way of filling up space, that the ego structure would rather be uncomfortable mm -hmm. 
than non-existent. Right. right. And there's a form of attachment too that takes place, right? And, and I think well, the struggle really comes from that attachment we have to everything around us. And really, I think that transformation happens through detaching, whether it's the future, our plans, or the people that we're going to leave behind, all kinds of things, right? Yeah. So definitely. So I guess shifting gears now and understanding the whole pro process of conscious dying, what does that look like for, for people in, in terms of the work you do? Well, it's a very individual process. I mean, it's, it's hard to say what it looks like for everybody. I don't know if I can do that. I mean, what is conscious living? Let's start there. I mean, co conscious dying is only conscious living in the context of death is approaching, right? right? So at the, the most basic level, being conscious is being present. You're mindful. You're not totally asleep. You're aware that you're breathing. You're aware that you're angry. You're aware that you're tired. You're aware that you're horny. Whatever, whatever's happening, you're aware of it. You're not lost in a lot of judgment. Or if you're judging, you become aware that you're, you're, you're judging. So that's one level of conscious living. Uh, at the other end of the spectrum, being fully conscious, being truly awake, is for most people a long, gradual developmental process that involves embodied mindfulness. It involves opening the heart, the heart of compassion, the heart of devotion, the heart of loving kindness and gratitude and forgiveness. Mm -hmm. It involves going into the stage of Tantra where we, we begin to go beyond good and bad, right and wrong, pure and impure, and realize that it's all sacred. It's all a face of the divine or a face of the mother. In non-duality that Ramana Maharshi and Eckhart Tolle and Adyashanti and me and a lot of people talk yeah. about, right? So that being fully conscious is resting in that non-duality. There's not even somebody who's doing it. There's just awareness. There's not, I am aware, right? Right. So that we go through those stages. There's, there's the conscious embodiment, conscious mindfulness. Then there's uh, having your heart be consciously open and as I say, then into, into Tantra and into non-duality. And non-duality is of crucial importance because that's what we die into. Right. In my, in my understanding, having been with a lot of dying people and being with a lot of great saints and done a lot of meditating and taking a lot of psychedelic drugs, that when, the, when you leave the body, the first thing that happens is you open up into pure spaciousness. And... The Tibetans say that this is as bright as a thousand suns. Mm -hmm. That's pretty bright. Yeah. I mean, look, looking at a thousand suns, for most people, they would have to cover their eyes. They were afraid their eyeballs are going to get burned yeah. out, right? So to the extent that you or I or anybody has practiced this surrender into how brilliant life is, how... how uh, sacred everything is and many people have had this experience in psychedelics for mm -hmm. instance right where you see everything is awake the stone is conscious the the tree is a being right that everything is pure consciousness yeah. and we think oh you know this isn't a this isn't a hallucination this is actually the way things are i just generally am so preoccupied with everything else i don't even mm -hmm. see this but this is truly a level of reality and what, I, what my 
understanding and study and experience shows is that we die into that. It's not like necessarily taking a psychedelic drug. It's much more direct and full than that, I would yeah. hope. But, but uh, so to the extent that in life, you're very busy being me, uh, death is going to be a pretty big shocker. Mm-hmm. Think about the two people. One of them has a really, really hard time dying. And the person I would imagine be some guy on the 83rd floor in some high rise in New York with some captain of industry. He says something and everybody goes and makes it happen. And he always gets his way. And then the doctor says, look, I've got bad news for you. You've got this kind of pancreatic cancer and you're going to be out of here in, in three yeah. months. And he's, 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 he's never prepared for that, right? He's always been able to fix things or do whatever the heck he wants. Then person number two, it's some old grandmother, great-grandmother down in Central America living out in a rural area. She's watched some of her grandkids die. She's been planting and harvesting crops for decades and decades. She's, you know, she's watched uh, people and animals die and leave and be beautiful and be not beautiful and all these Mm -hmm. things. And when it it comes time for her to die, it's another moment of that very open living. She's walking around with her feet in the earth. She's grounded. She's heartfelt. Right. So, I mean, those are very simplistic. Uh, uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Examples. Archetypes. You know, I mean, it it doesn't have to be male, female and all that thing. But I mean, you get the idea that that some people are going to have a lot easier time dying Mm -hmm. than others. And uh, I've been around, I, I, when I ran the dying center, one person came there to die who was, had been a meditation teacher for 30 years. I thought, boy, this is going to be great to help yeah. her with the, the dying process. She had a really hard time because all of her, all of her wisdom was up in her head mm-hmm. and she got really, really tight when the end of her life started going out of control, when she couldn't control how much pain she had or what her mind was doing. Her meditation process, her practice, her spiritual understanding didn't go down deep enough into her body. It was too much in her mm-hmm. head. There was another guy then who came who was a, he'd been a shepherd for many years, tending sheep in the mountains in the Colorado, New Mexico border. He'd watched all these animals die, the seasons come and go. He, he had an easy time and he'd never meditated the day in his life in any formal kind of way. But he'd been out in nature almost all of his mm-hmm. life. Yeah, I mean that's thanks for sharing those examples. That I, I mean, it, it really depends on the person. And I had a recent experience with my grandmother passing away, and I was fortunate enough to talk to her on Facetime. And and it's interesting to your point when you mentioned the in your example the grandmother who just kind of accepts it. That's what I noticed in her, and it was kind of a beautiful experience for me to see someone uh, at so much peace and ready and it was a lot easier to accept it because i knew there was no pain that came with it or or pain of loss it was more of a felt like almost like a celebratory thing for me because i felt like she she knew she was going to a better place right and fantastic yeah and and i guess one of the things I'm curious to know, because I know we've talking about a lot of the times where it's it could be a terminal illness or it could be age related. 
But this is something we can meditate on and practice in our daily lives, irrespective of what our life circumstances are. Is that fair to say? It's, it's uh, completely fair to say, yes. Right. And, and, and again, to your point, it, it's really around that aspect of living in our heart and detaching from all the things we've created in our lives and, and kind of moving past those and, and accepting that next chapter. Um, anything else you want to share around this process or that listeners you think could, could benefit from? Well, uh, yeah, I guess what I'd like to say is that certainly there are a lot of imbalances in the world. And we look at what's going on politically, environmentally, socially, homelessness, hunger, mass migration. All these things seem wildly out of balance. And the way we've been talking about conscious dying up until now in our conversation is pretty much focusing on caring for one person at mm -hmm. a time. Uh, at the same time, there is a collective Western, and the Western world now uh, pretty much includes most of the world, if you really get right down yeah. to it in a lot of ways. Uh, it, it ha there's a collective denial of death that the greed, the selfishness, the fear that's driving all these imbalances is basically coming out of this unexamined fear of Indeed. death. And one can be an activist and deal with homelessness or global climate change or hunger or uh, working with trauma victims or whatever, so many different categories, obviously. But you run over here and put a Band-Aid on and then the blood starts spurting out over here with homelessness and you deal with homelessness and then it spurts out over climate change and just go running around. Maybe there's nothing more direct we can right. do than going to the core wound, which is this fear of death. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the same time, it's difficult to ask people, and it's maybe asking too much. I think it is asking most people too much. I think it's asking me too much to just say, okay, examine your fear of mm -hmm. death. But at the same time, can we begin to examine in a more moment-to-moment -moment way, more workable, less uh, daunting experiences that so many times during the day there's anxiety or guilt or pulling away from connectedness. Just as an example, the quality of compassion, the compassionate heart, the open heart, has some defining qualities. One of them is... Uh, a connected heart mm -hmm. right now does your heart feel connected to yourself mm -hmm. yeah does it feel, does it feel connected to me yes does it feel connected to god or whatever you call yeah. that verticality if mm -hmm. you will uh another quality of the open heart is a spacious heart one that's not bogged down in a lot of concepts particularly the concept of i can the, can the heart be spacious, allowing experience to arise and pass away moment to moment without grasping? Mm -hmm. And the third thing is it's a warm heart. It's not a cold heart. It's a heart that melts when you feel the suffering of another person. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, it's it, great to work directly with fear of death. But 
that fear comes out in much more subtle ways, moment to moment to moment, that are much more workable. And I would guess that you and a lot of people on this podcast are people who, uh, sorry, excuse me for that. I just got a text message. Okay. Oh, my mind got shattered by a text message that shows what a great practitioner I am. Okay. Okay. So, uh, Can we, in a moment-to-moment way, begin to notice when we're disconnected, when our heart becomes cold, when our heart becomes less than spacious? There are certain somatic signals. I mean, for me, when I'm really present, my voice has a slightly different quality. Mm-hmm. My, my, my shoulders uh, become a little more relaxed. My lower belly relaxes and becomes full and i i try to speak and listen and move around and do things from this place of being present and being open-hearted uh i've been meditating uh way longer than you've been alive i think and i'm still as neurotic as this guy that's talking to you but i don't really i don't really care about that so much anymore uh and so that practice just allows one to get a lot more comfortable in your skin to be able to realize that I'm a human being who's going to die one day. And I don't know when that day is. It might, it might even be before you and I are done with this podcast. I mean, we kind of expect we're going to be done in 20 minutes or 10 minutes or whatever it is. And then I'm going to go eat dinner and you're going to go what you do. And then, Tonight, I'm going to go to bed with who I go to bed, and you're going to go to bed with who you go to bed with, or alone, or whatever it is. And then the next day, you don't know. Right. Right. So, if in fact we really didn't know, if we knew that we were going to die, but we really didn't know when, how would that motivate us to be more present? I mean, like, I'm probably never going to see you again in this life. I mean, maybe you're so taken with this you say hey we got to do this again yeah <laughs> i would love not. to i would right. love to <laughs> <laughs> but i guess what i'm saying here is the point is this is the only opportunity to do what we're doing yeah. right now right i mean i remember once i was in tibet actually it's a long story it's probably not worth the trouble but i've started it so yeah. here it goes so we're, we're traveling to mount kailash seven days in these toyota land cruisers I was with a friend who was a pretty well-known photographer in some ways. And we stopped to pee and the women went over one side and the men went the other side. And this is beautiful lake there. And my friend was coming back to the car and said, oh, I'm not going to get the picture. I didn't have my camera and we have to leave now. And I said, you can get the picture on the way yeah. back after we go to the mountain. We, she said, it's not going to be the same. This picture will, will never, it's only this moment. The light is a certain yeah. way at a certain time of the day. It's this moment. It's never going to be here again. And it's like, duh, all right. You know, it had never occurred to me. Oh, you can come back and take the picture in a week. No, it's not going (laughs) to happen. Right. And that's the way life is. It's like, this is the chance. This is the chance to love. This is a chance to die into love. This is a chance to die into the next moment, to surrender, to receive grace. Yeah. 
There's this, there's this great poem by St. John of the Cross, this great Spanish mystic, where he says, like he's talking to God and says, what is grace? And God says, everything is grace. And I mean, it's hard to appreciate some things as grace when you think about what's happening to Ukrainians yeah. right now, or you think of what's what's happening to children who are hungry or and you can find so many examples, yeah. obviously. Yeah, I know. And that's, I mean, that's beautiful because I think what you're really trying to highlight here is being present, right? Living in that present moment, because quite often we're so preoccupied with the past or the future and we forget to really enjoy those beautiful moments that are in front of us, like the now. Right. Or even enjoy the not so beautiful moments. Yes. Well, it's all perspective, right? That's how yeah. I look at it. <laughs> um, and, and what are your thoughts on this whole obsession that science has right now with finding ways to live longer and reverse aging? Um, what are your thoughts with that? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I think it would be pretty horrible if everybody lived forever. You know, there are these people who are claiming that they're extending their life expectancy by more than a year every yeah. year, which extrapolated means they're going to live forever. And, uh, you know, I'm 80 years old. And I feel the same as I did when I was 70. I, I was out hiking today and I'm going to go to the gym tomorrow. I feel pretty great. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm not interested in being somebody who's like doddering around and my brain is shot and I can, I can barely, you know, get out of bed in the mm -hmm. morning. But uh, at the same time, I don't want to spend too much time balancing what pills I'm taking and spending too much time trying to, I don't know. I mean, it's, I guess the question is, is the motivation for doing this fear of death or is it I'm enjoying life so much I want more of it? And I, I really suspect a lot of it is the former mm -hmm. for a lot of people. Right. You know, I live, I, I don't live now, but I live pretty close to Silicon Valley. I, Valley, I grew up in Silicon mm -hmm. Valley. There's a lot of these people there, these billionaires who like they've got a house in New Zealand for the uh, coming apocalypse and they're trying to live forever and, and all those things. And uh, I've met some of these people and they're not particularly happier than anybody else. I will assure right. you that, right? They got a way nicer car than I've mm -hmm. got, right? But I've got a better girlfriend than <laughs> they have. So anyway. <laughs> well... If and I think would. to your point, if they were really wanting to extend their life because they're enjoying it so much, they would still be losing out on the present moment. They're not fully enjoying it because they're obsessed with some future event that may or may not happen. Yeah, I think that's often the yeah. case. Yeah. 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 I mean, it just fascinates me because uh, I think about it. I've had my own contemplation with death and it was quite the peaceful moment when I was able to just accept what going to come out of it and it just gives you way more power and freedom to live your life to the fullest um dale i thank you so much uh for coming on here and sharing your life experiences and the work you do i really appreciate it um i must say i was a little nervous talking to you so um thank you for why would that so who who was nervous i was nervous who's who's that why? 
Well, I could push you at that. So you were nervous because you had some impression that I might know something or like I'm somebody who's done things. And... Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, you know, a lot of the work you've done is, uh, is I think inspiring for me. So it's just normal. I, at least for me, it's normal to feel a bit nervous, but yeah. So what I'm saying though, is that, so that's, that's fear of death mm -hmm. right there is that nervousness. And instead of saying it's normal, can you, can you examine that? I mean, yeah. uh, there's a you who's kind of looking up to me for reasons right or wrong. I, I'm not saying I'm any better than anybody else. I don't really think I yeah. am, but, but, uh, what does it feel like to be nervous about talking to Dale? You know, and can you just be with that instead of saying, well, this is normal. Well, I mean, normal, I, I guess is okay, but does putting it into the category of normal prevent you from really investigating and having compassion for that part? Of Absolutely. Yourself? No, I appreciate that challenge. And that's something I'll definitely meditate on and journal tonight. Okay. And then beyond that, let, let me just say again that my website, livingdying.org, is the most complete site on the whole internet about consciousness. There's so much free material yeah. there. There's meditations and lectures, and I, I got a podcast on the Be Here Now Network under my spiritual name, Ram Dave, BeHereNowNetwork.com. Mm -hmm. uh, there's about 80 podcasts there about all these spiritual topics. There's Krishna Das is there, and Jack Cornfield and Ram Das and on, on and on and on different people. No, that's great. I put all of that in the, in the show notes and okay. Yeah. Great. And I really appreciate your, uh, your sense of humor. I, I really enjoyed talking to you today. So thank you very much. It's been a pleasure being with you. Take good care thank of yourself. You. Thank you for checking out this episode with Dale. As always, please leave a review or comment in the comment section. I always love hearing from you and until next week.